According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, continuing in our episode 10. Episode 10, titled Jesus' Last Sermon. We're adapting a harmony of the Gospels from... Uh, A.T. Robertson and uh, New Bible Dictionary and a few other sources. And so the episode titles are not of my own uh, invention. This is one that I'm a little bit bothered by. We should go ahead and insert the word public in there and I think you'll do better. His last public sermon. He will still have private messages to his disciples. He still has the upper room discourse, the Mount Olivet discourse. Uh, he is, he's not done speaking by a long shot. But this is Wednesday of the Passion Week. He will be on a cross within on the cross within 48 hours. And uh, so this is his final public message in uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Matthew 23. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to confess any sins that need to be dealt with, to humble your heart, quiet your heart, and submit to the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble here today. Father, we think of those who uh, are normally here this morning, but You understand the, the surgery that's taken place and the folks that are there. Father, we ask that You would be with them and bless them, encourage them in every way, give the surgeon uh, wisdom and skill in the procedure. As always, Father, the, uh, our confidence and faith is not in the, the uh, medical professionals, but uh, Father, in You. You are the Lord, our healer, and you are the uh, infinite God of the universe who made us, who saved us, who loves us. And Father, we're delighted to, uh, to be held firmly in your arms. Father, um, we also commit to you a couple of things that we're anticipating today, later tonight, some meetings and some uh, possible conflicts. And we just want grace to be the order of the day. We want you to be well pleased. We want your Holy Spirit to be empowering all that is said and done. And ultimately, Father, we want your Son to receive the maximum glory in all that we do. And now, Father, for this hour that's set before us, we thank you for the blessing of the study that went into this preparation. And we pray as the message goes forth, it would not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Clear side distractions, hedge us about, Father, hinder anyone from coming in here that would want to bring us to harm. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, we're dealing with a series of woes in this chapter. We have an introduction that takes us through verses 1 through 12. And actually, if you understand the introduction, you understand the whole chapter. And uh, <clears throat> when we went through that in the detail, hopefully you've seen that. The issue at the end of the introduction in verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the theme. And then that theme gets expanded through seven different woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes, hypocrites. <clears throat> they are definitely in the category of exalting themselves. And so they are the ones that will, <clears throat> as a consequence then, be humbled. If you're following along in the outline, we are presently in main point five. And uh, just very quickly, 
No, I'll let it go. Uh, points one through four are on the website. If you want to listen to the MP3 file, you can get caught up on those. Let's just move on today to main point five. Jesus delivers seven woes in a manner reminiscent of many Old Testament prophets. Uh, the Greek vocabulary that we have here in Matthew 23 is the interjection ui, one of those onomatopoetic words that sounds like it means in the sense of ui. You don't have to be a native Hebrew speaker. And when, you, when somebody is shouting ui, it uh, does not sound like a pleasant experience or a happy situation. And uh, it is similar to the Hebrew expressions. We have both hoi and oi in the Old Testament. And uh, we spent some time last week going through the various Old Testament prophets from Moses to uh, Balaam to uh, David and Samuel and Isaiah, all the prophets there that we looked at, all related to their woe messages. The point being, every single time when a woe message is being delivered, it is, it's bad news. It is, it is the hand of God's judgment. It is, it's, the, it's not an or else message. You're already past the or else final warning, the oi Message is the message of woe. And that's what they're getting here. Woe number one, scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites. They are unsaved and they actively hinder the salvation of others. We glean this out of verse 13 and we had some discussion last week related to this, also related to the parallel in Luke 11.52. Now, um, we have given uh, several uh, realms of teaching as it approaches here the concept of kingdom of heaven. There is a lot more uh, that kingdom of heaven entails. And we're not going to recover that uh, previous ground, but we're going to go ahead and leave it for this chapter, for this uh, context. We're going to leave it as if it is a comparable statement to being saved. All right. That's not 100 percent proper. But for the purposes of this class, we're going to let it go at that. Um, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. All right, so they themselves are excluded. They themselves do not enter. And they actively hinder others from doing so as well. And I find this interesting because this is uh, very similar to what we encounter in our discussions, debates, uh, conflicts, as it were, with atheists. I've always been stunned. Not, I, I don't know why. Uh, I suppose, in a way, I shouldn't be. Uh, but so many atheists are not only militant about what they don't believe, but they also are very passionate about convincing other people to not believe what they don't believe, as it were. Well, why is that? Why, uh, why are you so fervent about surrounding yourself with like-mindedness in this in this uh, belief system that they have? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Perhaps it answers itself. But this is the first of the seven indictments. Now, in verse 14, um, I do believe this is an interpolation that comes out of the Luke and Mark uh, parallels. It does not have any basis in any ancient manuscript related to the Gospel of Matthew itself. The uh, troubling text tradition of, uh, of verse 14 is that when it did start to creep into various manuscripts, it uh, found its way in various places as well, not always in between verse 13 and verse 15. And so uh, it's, uh, it's quite clear that it's not original to the manuscript of the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Not a problem, though, because we cover the devouring of widows' houses when uh, we look to the parallels in Mark and in Luke. Moving on to verse 15 then. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And so woe number two, as I've rephrased this, scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites, expend maximum satanic effort, maximum satanic effort for minimum earthly results with doubled hellish consequences. And the more that we dwell on the, the uh, principles that come out of this 15th verse here and we see who's empowering them, why do they have such energy, why do they have such drive? I mentioned the atheist passion a moment ago, but uh, you could plug in any number of other groups that, that uh, knock on a lot more doors than most Christians typically do. Or they log more miles on their bicycle than anybody except probably Pastor Ralph Braun. Um, you know, he, he logs a lot of bicycle miles, I know. But um, what is it that drives this zeal? What is it they're trying to achieve? Now, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not uh, mocking passion or energy. And we should have a passion. We should have a drive. We ought to have a heart that sees that the fields are white for the harvest. And I appreciate the work that we do with uh, the, the going into the public schools and child evangelism and everything. We've got to make sure, though, it's motivated by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that it's not a false crusade because uh, this, uh, there's a power there, too. And uh, we can't be seduced by that power. Now, their goal is to make proselytes. And we discussed what a proselyte is, a convert, a Gentile convert to Judaism. And the, the thing with these Pharisees is their goal, their objection, their objective is not to lead an unbeliever to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, given our vocabulary today, their goal is not to take an unconverted unbeliever who's on the road to hell and provide for them information so that they receive eternal life. No, in fact, Pharisees wouldn't even talk to a Gentile. The conversion of a proselyte from a Pharisee standpoint is winning over converts uh, or actually adherents to, first of all, Phariseeism in general, but then specifically to their particular school within Phariseeism. And then the dominant ones, the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai, were fiercely um, <clears throat> competitive, fiercely uh, recruiting, uh, fiercely opposed to their other branches and so forth. So it is, uh, it's an interesting aspect and one that, again, I wonder sometimes uh, are modern-day evangelistic efforts geared towards a clear gospel message so that the unbeliever receives eternal life, or are we just trying to get more Baptists? Are we just trying to get more Lutherans? Are we just trying to get more, you know, doctrinal Bible church people? Are we just trying to, you know, are we are we reaching into the into the uh, other churches to, to are we sheep stealing? In other words, and so uh, we need to make clear that if that's our approach, uh, this is a verse that may become rather convicting when uh, we find that such activity is actually hellish. And the fruit of that is even worse. The fruit of that is even worse. Uh, something that if you've ever been exposed to this, or I know a lot of folks uh, sometimes come into ministries like this and some things in their past are often uh, or frequently they are of a more legalistic background. And, and they're actually kind of glad that they fled from that or, or the Lord delivered them from that. Uh, but the, the, the terrible thing about the slavery to legalism is that it is a horrible taskmaster. And it always expects greater devotion and greater achievement and greater um, 
worthiness. Because remember, it's the legalism that's your scale of how good a Christian you are and how, how wonderful you're doing, as it were. And that's a horrible slave master because it never decreases. It's always on the increase, always on the increase. And uh, different applications there. All right. Now, new ground for today. Let's look at woe number three, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Um, Let's go ahead and read the next couple of verses. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? It goes on in verse 18. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. All right, so now we've got to deal with verses 16 all the way down through verse 22. Here's woe number three. Blind guides. This is what he calls, a lot of name calling in this chapter. (laughs) All right, blind guides, a.k.a. fools and blind men. Um, And by the way, lest you think he's changing um, audience, he's not, because when he looked... To verse 23, it's back to scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And in verse 24, he makes it clear that they are the same people that he's calling blind guides. So uh, all seven of these are targeted towards the same recipients, the same uh, people that he's addressing. Fools and blind men. They draw fine lines, fine lines in in their manipulations and distortions of obligations and duties to God. They're drawing fine lines. These are the lawyers. Remember, they're lawyers, like lawyers today. What's the fine print? What does it really mean? Or what can we convince people it really means? All right? And it's, it's wicked. We are not free to do this. We are not co-editors of God's Word. We are, he is the author, and we are accountable for what he wrote. And hermeneutics is determining what he meant by what he said when he put it in writing. And so this whole idea of being able to manipulate things, going back, well, you swore by the temple, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, now is when you're obligated. See, And so they, they invent this distinction. See, they invent this, and, and this is purely human. This is, this is uh, you know, fallen humanity, no doubt uh, motivated by satanic wisdom. Is, uh, is always in a justification kind of mode. <laughs> you know, you do, you, that's no news flash. We've seen this ever since Genesis 3. We've seen the justification that, that Eve put forth and Adam put forth. And, and it's just, it's the way it goes. And so they, they create distinctions. And they say, well, okay, the Bible might say this, but, okay, I'm not really stealing. I know the Bible says thou shalt not steal, but I'm not really stealing because such and such. Okay? And so you create a fine line that you can dance around and you can convince yourself that you're okay. Right? And, uh, and we do this in a variety of ways. I like the fact that there's, 
several illustrations here. <clears throat> the temple versus the gold of the temple. Or the altar and uh, the offering on it. Okay. Or um, I thought there was a third one here too. But the point being, oh, heaven and the throne. There it is in verse 22. He gives a variety of illustrations here so that we understand that the whole point is not the specific illustration. The whole point is the principle that each of these illustrations, uh, that all of them together are pointing towards. All right? That <coughs> we need to embrace the totality of what God has commanded us and not try to draw a line in there and filter something out and make for ourselves excuses. Okay? And this is what we're going to see not only from the standpoint of this message here, but this is what we're going to be dealing with Sunday morning in the book of Romans, this Sunday and probably the Sunday after that as we deal with the um, issues in the, in the early verses of Romans chapter 3. Uh, <clears throat> another similar situation there where people can start to make excuses for what they're doing. And uh, they can even claim that, uh, they're not, that God really can't judge them for what they're doing. Because, uh, you want a preview for Sunday? <clears throat> All right, hold your finger there. Let's take a peek over at Romans chapter 3 and I'll show you this. <clears throat> a person may say, in verse 5, you know, my unrighteousness actually, technically, you know, the truth is, my unrighteousness actually demonstrates the righteousness of God. <laughs> Or my lie, in verse 7, my lie actually serves to magnify God's truth. So, if you think about it this way, <clears throat> I am a, I'm, a, I'm simply a tool that's magnified God's righteousness. Why, why would I be judged for that? I, it seems to me I should be rewarded for that, right? If, if I magnify God's righteousness, okay, no. <laughs> and we'll give you more detail on that on Sunday. We'll actually spell it out. Um, and we like saying, well, you know, I raised my children. Um, my children will be, my son will be a better father. This is kind of fun. My son's sitting on the back row. Um, <laughs> but if, if a man was to say, my son is going to be a better father because I gave him all the examples of what not to do. <laughs> I did everything wrong. I was a terrible father. And so because of that, because he has all this example of what a train wreck of a father is, uh, I've actually equipped him and I've blessed him and he'll, he'll learn from my bad example. Okay? So won't I be rewarded? Okay? You understand? It is ludicrous. It is, it is, it is, it's like backwards from anything pertaining to reality. But that's what Evil does. It calls good evil and evil good. It turns things upside down and backwards. It's horrible. So, back to Matthew 23 then. And drawing their lines and, and creating their fine point. And, you know, oh, if you ever read the Mishnah, you're going to see tons of these kinds of illustrations, for example. And how, how do you give alms on the Sabbath? And how do you... You know, when you can't carry something from indoors to outdoors or you violate the Sabbath. Okay? And so if a, if a beggar on the Sabbath reaches his hand through your window, you can, you can put a coin in his hand and you're not breaking the Sabbath. But when he then break, brings the coin out the window, then he breaks the Sabbath. 
say, because he carried a load on the Sabbath day. And, this, you know, and so, but it's very clear on this. But another school would say, no, you don't want the beggar to break the Sabbath, so you stick your hand out the window. And then when he takes the coin from your hand, then he's not breaking the Sabbath. And crazy things. But let's go ahead and just make more rules. Oh, my. But what they're doing is they're manipulating. They're manipulating. And um, if that's your hard attitude, you're not obeying anyway. You're not obeying for a minute. And uh, the Lord makes that very clear in, in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, I am sick of your offerings. You're trampling my courts. You're, uh, sweet sm- they're supposed to be sweet-smelling savers. And he says, they stink. I'm weary of bearing them. All right? Because they're manipulators. And let's face it, our God's a God of truth, and this is absolutely the antithesis of His very nature. Manipulations and distortions. Jesus ripped into Him on a previous message. Do you remember when they had this thing called Korban? They had this thing where, sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help my parents. I can't. And He says, you're violating the law. The law says you've got you to honor your father and mother. And you found this way to... You know, like a tax shelter. You found a way to, to, to shelter your assets and, and suppose, oh, this is dedicated to the temple. Oh, pathetic. All right. And so um, here they are. They're fine lines and their manipulations. And this is, as we see all seven of these, of course, the modern parallel is us. <laughs> the modern parallel is 21st century American churchianity. It's It's organized religion that's devoid of the reality, holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. And so when we start to see even a glimmer of this creeping in, then we've got to root it out. It's like leaven. You've got to root it out entirely. And, uh, and just pray by God's grace that uh, this ministry doesn't, doesn't uh, plunge into such things. All right. What's our fourth woe? Uh, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. We've seen this before, actually, in previous messages. Uh, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> All right. Woe number five. I'm sorry, woe number four. Notice, scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites, are also, a.k.a. blind guides. Okay, So it's the same crowd we're talking to here. They get lost in legalistic minutiae. They get lost in legalistic minutiae. And they completely miss the big picture for a life that pleases God. They completely miss the big picture for a life that pleases God. Yeah. tithing mint and dill and cumin. Can you imagine? You go to H-E-B and you get your weekly groceries and you come home and you've you got your sacks on the table and you're, getting, you're putting stuff up in the cupboards and, and before you can get your, your paprika from the <laughs> or any of your spices, you know, you've got to unscrew the little cap. You've got to measure out you know, the, the, the 10% that you're going to tie and put the rest back in the bottle and you put that up in the shelf and then this is what you're going to take and this is what you're going to give. Mint and dill and cumin. And, and you're so fastidious. And, uh, and today is the same thing. What I think of is mechanical legalism. 
in, uh, well, you know, I want to be, I want to be under teaching. Every time the doors are open, every time the doors are open, every time the doors are open. Now I promote that. I recommend that. I teach that. But that can become mechanical legalism if you're just there because you have to be there. You feel it's expected or, or, uh, or so forth. Um, never lose track of why you're doing what you're doing. It's the first uh, danger step into falling into this mechanical legalism. Getting lost in legalistic minutia, completely missing the big picture. Now, here's the other danger, though. How many people today are claiming that, well, we're going to embrace the big picture, and so because of that, I can go ahead and ignore this little stuff. Okay? Jesus isn't saying ignore your duties. Let's look at this again, because he does say at the end of verse 23, these are the things you should have done, the weightier things, law, uh, justice, mercy, faithfulness, and they weren't doing those. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Okay? And I've spoken with folks, you probably have too, that, um, you know, they say, well, you know, Christianity is a relationship, or it's just a, it's my walk with God, and, 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 and he wants us to love one another, and I, I, I'm just living my life like that. And, 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 that's, and what, the thing is, they're, they're turned off to church. They're turned off. Um, they've actually got authority issues that they resent uh, the disciplined teaching of a pastor teacher and things. And they've got other things. Well, they try to say, well, we got the big picture. We got the big picture. You know, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. All right. Glad to hear it. Are you obedient to the Scriptures? <laughs> Can we have that conversation? Um, and not neglecting the others. I think a lot of this goes into, remember, the Mary and Martha applications of uh, Mary's priorities and Martha's distractedness. And uh, we've got to realize we've got to be faithful to what we've been assigned, but we can't miss the, uh, Jesus told Martha quite plainly, Mary has chosen the, be chosen the better part. And um, hopefully you recall the, the doctrine, the principles that came out of that episode there. Strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Isn't that, isn't that the danger? You know, and, uh, and what I really wonder sometimes with, um, with things, um, discussions. I think we, have, uh, we, we do have Jude 3. We do have earnestly contending for the faith. There is a place for that. We have to stand. We have to stand firm. But I wonder... If sometimes we lose our focus on where we stand firm, how we stand firm, and why we stand firm. And when it comes to uh, a lot of people get a lot of mileage out of Jude 3, I'm going to earnestly contend for the faith. Well, glad to hear that. Where are you earnestly contending for the faith? How are you earnestly contending for the faith? Is it, uh, is it within the confines of our flock, our congregation, the body to whom you are accountable, as we are accountable to build up one another, to love one another, to rebuke one another, to uh, submit to one another, be in subjection one to another in Christ. Um, does it extend beyond our congregation? Has God called me to straighten out other congregations? Has God called me to, uh, to uh, correct false doctrine in other denominations? Has God corrected me? To, has, am I under a command to... Uh, institute more morality reform in my culture? I think these are all legitimate questions. And different believers come to different conclusions on this. 
And I find it remarkable the way that they end up um, swallowing a gnat or straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. And here's what I mean. They, uh, they, they avoid swallowing the gnat because they've, they've um, you know, they, they can answer correctly on a test related to superlapsarianism or, or some, you know, some point of theology. And so they're avoiding a bad doctrine. But at the same time that they're avoiding a bad doctrine, they're also embracing a harmful philosophy, in my view. The harmful philosophy of a kingdom mindset of which is defiance of scriptures that we're going to somehow improve our society we're going to improve our culture okay and so i would ask believers to to consider what is our role as salt and light what is our responsibility as a lampstand what is our responsibility as individual believer priests children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? What is our ambassador function? And what happens when ambassador function, proper ambassador function, gets twisted into a crusader arrogance type of activity? At what point then has a believer just swallowed a camel? Because he's no longer operating under what it is that he has authority to do. Any event, this is uh, these are the things that we consider as we um, as we proceed. All right, scribes and Pharisees get lost in legalistic minutia and completely miss the big picture for a life that pleases God. And uh, we don't want to find ourselves in that capacity. There, verse twenty-five, our fifth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Internal cleansing is the priority. External cleansing is secondary. We dealt with something similar to this when uh, they were um, critical of the, Phar- of the, the Pharisees were critical of his disciples for not doing the ceremonial uh, cleansing before they ate. And they were walking through the fields and picking grain, heads of grain on the Sabbath, and they weren't uh, going through the ceremonial washing procedure before they ate their food. So we've had a similar message to this already. Woe number five. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites, they fixate on external purity. I think it's a fixation. They fixate on external purity in complete denial of their internal corruption. That's the reality. And they're in denial of that. Fixating on external purity in complete denial of their internal corruption. Like the uh, hypocritical Christians in their view of, the, of uh, or their uh, passion from week to week and maintaining appearances, maintaining image. And uh, their soul reality is as filthy as what's being described here. Um, robbery and self-indulgence. Remember, the initial fall of Satan, as described in Ezekiel 28, was internal before it was ever expressed externally. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned, we're told. 
and that internal mental attitude sin, that's what's accountable. And this, that will become the standard for judgment in the millennial kingdom, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. As, as Jesus said, that it's not only going to be adultery that will be held accountable. Mosaic law held adultery accountable. Kingdom law in the coming millennium is going to hold the mental attitude behind it accountable as well. Look at a woman with lust after your heart and the omniscient king of Jerusalem sitting there is going to know about it. All right. Or anger. See, you drive very long in Austin traffic, then uh, you're going to be violating that mental attitude of anger. See, try not to pray about it. (laughs) All right. Robbery and self-indulgence. Now, here's, again, where it comes down to, I think a lot of believers are in this mode already and they don't realize it. Because self-indulgence is actually attitudinal before it ever reaches your thinking. And this is what we're going to deal with this evening when we come back tonight and deal with our, our Second Corinthians series. What is the process before you ever have an action, you've had a thought. But before you've ever had a thought, you've had a desire. And before you ever have the desire, you have the attitude that shapes that desire, or the attitude that, that orients the direction that desire is going to be facing. Okay? And so we've got to understand, this is how the Bible lays it out. The Bible lays it out. The action has a thought behind it. The thought has an attitude behind it. And the attitude, am I saying this right? Desire. I missed desire. There's a desire before the thinking, and then thinking before the action. But even before the desire, even before the desire, what shapes that desire? What points that desire either towards a positive volition uh, angle or a negative volition angle? Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to point. (laughs) Positive or negative, okay? What is the attitude? And how is it it humble, submitted to the Father, or is it self-indulgent? Is the attitude one that's looking to self? Even before the desire is shaped, even before the thought is formed. Okay. And that all comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we'll be seeing that this evening in that, in that process. Now, this internal corruption, robbery and self-indulgence. Remember, this is all consistent with what we saw in the introduction down to verse, verses 11 and 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the attitude. Is it self-indulgence or is it humility? Are we, are we looking out for our own interests? Are we saved by grace and walking in grace and thanking the Father that by His grace, here we have one more day? All right. First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. And to me, this is why I wouldn't trade a grace ministry for anything on earth. To me, I would not trade doctrinal teaching. I would not trade a grace philosophy of of ministry for anything under the sun. Because we... We can relax about things, activities. We can relax about, uh, about things because the teaching will transform. As the Word of God goes forth, the mind will be renewed. If you're renewed in the spirit of your mind, you won't be conformed to this world. All right? Now, a new believer comes in here and gets saved, and, and uh, let's face it. There's some pretty spectacular backgrounds around here. <laughs> That's fine. Wonderful. Thankful that God saved us all. But let's recognize that for a lot of folks, there's going to be some, some 
things to unlearn and, and obviously everything to, to learn brand new as a child in Christ. And we've got to have patience with that. We've got to have grace towards that. We've got to, as older believers, we've got to disciple them through that and bring them through the, the rough spots and help them when there's, they're going to have some hang-ups. They're going to have some things they're not comfortable with because of things that went on before. Okay? So, um, but the, the privilege we have in grace is being able to teach the pure milk of the Word and being able to have the Word of God mold and transform and shape. And so... And the idea that as that transformation takes place, then the inside becomes clean. And then the behavior will reflect that more and more and more. Now, will there be failures here and there? Of course. But more and more and more, the behavior is going to be molded by the being. Being precedes doing, right? So as the thinking is transformed, there would be less and less of the, you know, the externals. And to me, that's the way it ought to be. If you're trying to do it the other way around, if you're a, on a legalistic approach and just got this long list of things and, and you're preaching about this and preaching about that and you, you're dispatching your deacons to, you know, watch and see, you know, is that skirt long enough? Is your hair long enough? Are you, are you drinking the right stuff and not drinking the wrong stuff? And are you dancing too close? Are you dancing with your wife? You know, all these rules, you know, rules can be faked and people can put on a show. And some of the best rule keepers you'll ever see that would have, would have the appearance of being the best deacons in your church aren't even saved. Because you've, you've substituted the reality of a transformed life with this artificial approach. These Pharisees need to get saved. He told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He was a teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Pharisees. Wasn't even saved. All right. So that's our fifth woe. What's our next woe? Woe number six, verses 27 and 28. Similar to woe number five. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites. A.k.a. is also known as. Did I tell you that already? Also known as. Okay. That's my law enforcement background. <laughs> we have aliases and all kinds of stuff. All right. You ever put a bolo out on anybody? You ever, have you read a bolo alert? Bolo was my nickname. You know that? Just because Bolander, Bolo, you know. But it's a law enforcement. It means be on the lookout. B-O-L-O. Be on the lookout. And so it's kind of neat having the nickname of be on the lookout, you know. Yeah. Look out for me. Okay. Like beware Pastor Bob, right? Remember, the, remember those days. <laughs> All right. They fixate. More fixations. They fixate on external beauty and complete denial of their internal death. They fixate on e external beauty in complete denial of their internal death. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Huh. Verse 28, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is why as we minister, we continue to operate on grace. We continue to operate in love. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Um, but we may find that, uh, you know, why are we shocked when a believer does something that shocks us? And we say, oh, I had no idea. I never would have dreamed. Well, it seems like a shock and it seems like 
something out of the blue, but it's not out of the blue. It's actually been going on for months or years, and it's just been buried or hidden, internalized, while the outward appearance continues to be what it is. And that's, you know, Lord knows it. We get fooled. We get betrayed. That's part of our test, too. Just leave it with Him. Let the Lord deal with it. You know, think about whitewashed tombs and outside beauty and all that. You know, for two years in the army, I was stationed in Germany and all the, all the cathedrals. You go into these old churches all throughout Europe. Unbelievable structures. You know, the, the architecture and the, the, the external, I mean, these vast cathedrals. And things, unbelievable. You know, and you watch this royal wedding at Westminster Abbey, right? And you go, oh my goodness. Not just the, the structure, the architecture, but the artwork and the, the, the decorations, the clothing, the, the, the pageantry. Okay? And it's all amazing. See, you know, <laughs> not like around here. <laughs> but what's the distinction, see? And then you have all this outward beauty, but what's the, what's the uh, theology of the Anglican communion? All right? What's the, what's the reality of the doctrine that they teach? See? How about external beauty and internal death? Uh, you read, have you read the first nine chapters of Proverbs lately? I just took our teenagers through the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Actually, up to chapter 12 or 13 now, I think, in our next teen class. Um, but our young people have to be aware of this. They've got to understand the truth. That, uh, that, that harlot may be seductive. She may be beautiful. She may, have, uh, may be very flattering. But on the inside, what's the beauty <laughs> or the ugliness? Where's the life? Where's the death? See, got to understand that. Mayor Christopher was, a, and I'm hoping he'll pipe up and say something in this class. He probably won't, though. He's too quiet. But he's 14 now. But I remember when he was four years old, we were going through a drive-through at Taco Cabana, and uh, get our food. I pay for it, and we're getting ready to leave. And we'd been talking about evangelism earlier in the day. And, and so I asked Chris, I said, that girl, uh, do you think she knows Jesus? Do you think she's saved? Christopher said, yeah, I think so. And I was stunned. I said, well, what makes you think that? That wasn't the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> the answer I wanted was like, well, we have no way to know. We need to ask her about Christ or give her the gospel or something. Instead, he says, yeah, I think she's saved. My four-year-old. Well, what makes you say that? Said, well, she's real pretty. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're still four. We got time. <laughs> Let's work on that. All right. External beauty. Internal death. And uh, just keep in mind the, the, the most beautiful created being ever brought into existence by Lord Jesus Christ was Satan himself. Described in Ezekiel 28. And uh, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was uh, corrupted by reason of his splendor. That beauty was a source of pride for him. It became a source of pride for him as he dwelt on it instead of dwelling on the perfections of God. So outwardly appearing righteous to men. And yet craving this, remember? They're craving the respectful greetings. They're craving the, the titles, being called rabbi, the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings. <laughs> and you wonder, you know, inside how wicked they truly are. Okay, one more woe. Woe number seven. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29. 
And this is where we lead into not only what we've got to deal with today, but we're going to lead into um, what we'll be dealing with next week. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. Well, what's wrong with that? And you adorn the monuments of the righteous. What's wrong with that? And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. It's a lie from the pit of hell. All right. They probably would have done worse. And we know that they are going to do worse because they're not just going to crucify a prophet. They're going to crucify the Christ. But this whole attitude of, oh, I would never do that. <laughs> oh, my. Do you, do you truly tempt the Lord that way? Do you truly tell him never? I would never do that. Yeah, Peter said he wouldn't deny the Lord three times either. And, or wouldn't deny the Lord, and the Lord said you will three times. The, um, the arrogance, the self-righteousness, that, that feeds that attitude. And it's, um, I think it's an interesting defense. And again, it's back to the attitude. I think there's, there are believers who actually have, they've got the right theology, but they don't always live it. They, uh, they, they, will, they will look you in the eye and tell you they believe in salvation by grace. And they will tell you they believe in eternal security. But then on a practical basis, they really start to have their doubts. And here's where they have their, their, their hang-ups. They have their hang-ups when they see a, a brother fall. They see a brother fall, and then they've got they've to deal with it. And a very common way that they deal with it is to say, well, they must have never have been saved in the first place. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's got to be it. Because they can't, they, they won't voice out loud that they lost their salvation. No, that's not right. So, well, it must have just been a profession of faith. Or it was false fruit under human effort kind of thing. But now we know. Now we know. Now the veil is off. Now the, and when they say that, what they're denying is that a believer can fall into quite so much darkness. Okay? They're okay with it to a point, because we all sin a little bit. You know, we sin here and there, but but oh, when they cross a line, and oh my goodness, and who drew that line? They did. They drew that line, and it's always interesting that that their personal sins are always on this side of that line, but those other people's sins, ooh, those homosexual sins, or those. Whatever, those pornography sins or those, you know, the things that are disgusting to you get put on that other side of the line. And if they are, if they're that bad, oh my goodness, they must never have been saved at all. Okay. Well, maybe we need to step back a little bit, get rid of that line and realize that even my sins that I don't think smell all that bad to God, <laughs> they fall short of the glory of God. That's right. Every one of my sins was nailed to Jesus Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And 
here's, here's where I think the, the denial comes in. I, I don't think it's a biblical conclusion they come to. I think it's part of this attitude. It's attitudinal. And that's why it's shaping the, the, the desire. And that shaped desire is then producing these thoughts. I think it's attitudinal when this idea is that, well, a believer can't do this. Look at those verses again. Look at those verses again. A believer can walk in darkness. That's why we have the imperative to walk in the light. God wouldn't command us to do something if if it was automatic or if the opposite wasn't possible. When we're told to be filled with the Spirit that we might not fulfill the lust of the flesh, that demands, you, you have to conclude, just grammatically, logically, that you can walk according to the flesh if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And believers that grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, resist the Holy Spirit, they're carnal. They're carnally minded. And here's the thing. We, we draw this line and say, okay, I understand in fellowship and out of fellowship. I understand spirituality and carnality. But they always want to throw a but in there. Okay? And I think we've got too many buts in our logical thinking, right? We say, well, this is true, but... A man says, I know the Bible says this, but I don't want to hear the rest of it. Just stop with, I know the Bible says this. Okay, I can agree with that. When you add the but in there, everything which follows is contrary to what the Bible says. When you, when you, when you phrase the attitude like that. So the idea that, um, that um, well, I would never do that. Now you testify against yourselves. You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And that's what we're going to deal with because what's going to happen, look with me down to verse 35. There's a cumulative wrath that has been building and building and building and building that has been reserved. And we're told in verse 35, the, uh, upon you may fall all the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel, that goes back to Genesis 4, to the blood of Zechariah, and that goes to Second Chronicles. And what we have here, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, there's a puzzle for you, uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You, you want to read that story? It's in Second Chronicles 24. Okay, And by going Genesis to Second Chronicles... When there is no New Testament yet, is taking in the whole the whole counsel of God's word. It's like saying from Genesis to Revelation, or it's like saying from A to Z. It is A to Z. It's Abel to Zechariah. <laughs> All right, but it's a comprehensive principle that so far divine wrath has been withheld in the murder of these. In the, in the shedding of righteous blood. Divine wrath has been withheld because in the mercies of God, He is going to redeem mankind by the shedding of righteous blood. Absolute righteousness. Infinite righteousness. And uh, the agents of, of that betrayal in other words, the generation that crucifies the Christ 
they're going to receive the totality of the wrath, the guilt of all the righteous blood. We'll spell that out next week. We'll give you more on that. But we have it previewed here in this seventh woe. Scribes and Pharisees, a.k.a. hypocrites, refuse to see where they are in the unfolding plan of God. Refuse to see where they are in the unfolding plan of God. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? They, they are the descendants of every prophet that said the Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. Now they are the generation for the greatest prophet ever who said the Christ is here. Talking about John the Baptist. Of those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And he did no miracles, but he said... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he proclaims as the herald, he proclaims their king. And now, they've already chopped off his head. They're about to now crucify their Christ. 48 hours from this, the speaking of this message, they're going to have Christ on the cross. They don't see where they are in the unfolding plan of God. Where they are in their dispensation, where they are in their, their stewardship and in their particular age. The dispensation of Israel broken down into the age of prophets or the age, age of promise, age of law, age of the incarnation. How awesome to be walking this earth during the age of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is walking among them. And they're still under law, but they are, they are walking this earth with the incarnation of the Son of Man. And failing to recognize where this is, they, they are then committing the unpardonable sin. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're rejecting the provision of God the Son. And they're going to put Him on the cross. You know, what's our application on this? How does this happen today? As I mentioned before, it happens all the time. I think a lot of crusader arrogance, a lot of um, what they label themselves kingdom theology... It's interesting. They're, they're trying to bring in through human effort what Jesus Christ said. Not even he himself knew the day or the hour. The Father will bring this in. The Father told Jesus Christ to have a seat until he made his enemies a footstool for his feet. We're not going to hear a trumpet until the Father says so. And we're not going to bring in the kingdom until we depart <laughs> at the rapture. And this world is given over and the restraint is lifted. And then we come back, then we'll bring back the kingdom. Then when we come with the king, then we'll bring the kingdom in. But I think a lot of church age saints think that they're, they're Nathan the prophet. They think they have the right to stand up and tell Barack Obama what for. As if somehow, you know, because Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 was commissioned to, to rebuke David for adultery and murder. And, and, and so they, they kind of craft in modern times a role for themselves based on what they think they have title to. I think we need to step back and reevaluate what are we as aliens and strangers. I think we need to step back. I think our greatest pattern is, uh, is Abraham during the age of promise. It was his land. Why did he pay cash for that cave? He should have just stood up as a 
No, we shouldn't have. Don't get me wrong. I think he's our pattern. I think he's our pattern in his stewardship. That was his cave. God had promised it to him. But God had not manifest that promise yet in time. He died in faith without seeing the promises realized in time. And so he goes and he pays cash for this cave to bury Sarah in. And then he's buried in it. All the patriarchs get buried in this cave. But why is he paying for a cave that's already his? We need to start realizing, okay, we're going to judge this world. Yes, we will judge angels. We will judge the world. We will reign with Christ. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. That's not what the church age is. Let's not confuse the coming kingdom with the present church. All right? And so failing to see where we are in the unfolding plan, failing to see where we are uh, in the post-apostolic age. Here's another... I'm a minute long already. Here's uh, another confusion post-apostolic Christianity trying to keep themselves in apostolic Christianity. There are no more apostles. There are no more apostles. I can't go into other churches and tell those pastors what to do. And they can't come in here and tell me what to do. <laughs> All right? We are in the age of the local church. We have the lampstands. Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every lampstand. He holds the star in His right hand. This is the age of the local church, not the age of the apostles. And if we fail to recognize that, we get caught up in all kinds of things. So, failure to refusing to see where they are in the unfolding plan of God. We'll come back to this next week. We're going to have to look at the warnings. I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Not the Father sending, I'm sending. Jesus Christ is sending. And that's powerful. We'll have to deal with that. And... Um, the, the application of this in uh, verses 34 through 36. And then the lament in verses 37 through 39. The passage that uh, I enjoy. Uh, well, I mean, I enjoy every passage. But a passage whereby um, most Calvinists that I talk to vibrate. Because you have the will of God and you have the will of man. And the will of God was to gather their children together the way a hen gathers her chicks. And you were unwilling. Same term. The will of God. The unwill. The will and the unwill. And um, so, does this mean God's sovereignty is thwarted? See, are we going to solve God's will and man's will on the Calvinist end? Or are we going to solve it on the Arminian end? Are we going to fall for the either or? Or are we going to stop to say, no wait, it's not either or. It's both and. God is absolutely sovereign. Men are accountable for their free will decisions. And God reconciles them and does not find them at all contradictory. <laughs> we'll have some fun with that. Okay? And, I, and like I said, I love every passage of Scripture, but this in particular is, uh, to me, is, is powerful. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Father, your word is truth. And I thank you for a congregation that is dedicated to truth. And, and Father, once again, we do lift up uh, this morning's surgery and the, and the uh, procedures. It's in your hands, Father. As always, we're, we're, we wouldn't want to be anywhere else but uh, recipients of your grace and the objects of your tender mercy. Father, uh, I pray that we would be convicted by messages such as this personally and corporately. That uh, each one of us would evaluate our lives and find, uh, find the pharisaical attitudes and root them out. And that congregationally, Father, that you would open my eyes and my deacons and help us to see things that are harmful. Help us to see snares. Help us to see... Um, issues before they become scandals. Father, help us to, uh, to uh, apply Your truth appropriately, biblically, dispensationally, accurately. 
And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.